You're listening to a sermon from Covenant Presbyterian Church in Cochrane, Alberta. If you'd like more information about our church, you can find us on the World Wide Web at www.covenantpresbyterian.ca. Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of John, chapter 5, as we continue our way through the Gospel. Today we are reading from verse 30 to 47, the word of the Lord. I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I seek, sorry, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. If I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. There is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. For the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the works that I am doing, bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, and the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, and you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father, There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, good morning. I'm one of those. Uh, I'm one of those guys that, for as long as I can remember, I love the courtroom scene. My favorite TV shows have uh, centered around the courtroom. The first one I can remember was Matlock. I know I'm speaking to a bunch of young people here. I don't know if you'll even remember Matlock, but I certainly remember Matlock. I loved Matlock. He was the district attorney that was able to wrest the truth from the lying and deceitful descendant on the stand. He never lost a case that I could remember. His approach reminded me a little of Columbo, you know, that bumbling, fumbling detective that was a whole lot smarter than he led on to be. Following Matlock, (coughs) pardon me, in the 80s was a sitcom called Night Court. While not having the dramatic affair of Matlock, it was still in the courtroom, except this time, because it was a sitcom, it was, it was more of a prosecutor versus defendant versus judge. 
sort of thing. It was, it was, it was funny. It was good. Then a funny thing happened in 1990. NBC aired a brand new show called Law and Order. That show ran for 20 years and produced a number of spin-offs due to the popularity of the show. And apparently, good news is Law and Order is making a comeback this year. I'm a little excited, to be honest. But let's face it, the direction of Hollywood lately hasn't been good, so we'll, we'll see how it goes. I was hooked. Law and Order, I was hooked from the first episode. The major difference? This time, the good guys didn't always win. Uh, I kind of laughed thinking they should have hired Matlock. They wouldn't have lost. However, the, what, what this demonstrated was that there were two sides to every story. It also demonstrates the understanding that evidence doesn't speak for itself. Let me repeat that. Evidence doesn't speak for itself. It doesn't matter if it's in the courtroom or if it's in the science classroom or the science textbook. Evidence does not speak for itself. It must be interpreted. It must be weighed. It also demonstrated that sometimes the men and women in blue sometimes got it wrong. Or worse, it shone the light on the fact that the good guys weren't always necessarily the good guys. At least not all of the time. It also showed how truth could be sacrificed at the altar of politics. But none of these things are new. They've been around for a very, very long time. Moses was the first judge of Israel, if you remember. And God set up the parameters. Not only of what laws were to be followed and the maximum penalties for those laws, but God also set up the scales of justice. And these concepts are still used to this day, more or less. The first law upon which the courtroom scene stands is the Ninth Commandment. After the first one, of course. But then the Ninth Commandment. The Ninth Commandment, of course, is Thou shalt not bear false witness. You, you should not be a liar. Do not lie. I'll be honest, it drives me crazy today that this commandment today is given so little regard. It appears to me that lying on the stand is not only considered a minor offense, but is also somewhat actually to be expected. The maximum penalty for perjury in Canadian courts today, believe it or not, is 10 years. 14 if the perjured testimony leads to a conviction. So what's the problem? You need to prove the perjury. And then, on top of that, you need to find a court that's willing to hear the case. You need a prosecutor that's going to actually put that, bump that, that up in their timeline in order to prosecute the case. You see, when God set down the law through Moses, lying was in God's top ten. How serious did God take this commandment? You can always tell the seriousness of a crime by the kind of punishment one can face for breaking it. In Jewish law, if a false witness led to the death penalty... That false witness would, guess what? Face the death penalty. In Jewish law, uh, it basically with a law like that, it would make you think twice about lying on the stand, wouldn't it? If the penalty doled out to the accused can in turn be given to you for lying, 
that's a bit of, a, uh, of, a, of an incentive to not fall into that trap, I would hope. And why is it so important? It's because the entirety of the legal system stands or falls on the truth. If the truth is not proclaimed, if lies are tolerated in courtrooms, then the entire judicial system becomes corrupt and useless. Once that happens, guess what happens to your society? Take the name Law and Order. I've watched enough shows I can almost do the entire intro without, without blinking. The concept is that there are two parts to the system. The investigators who uh, investigate crime and the district attorneys who prosecute the offenders. These are their stories, right? I'm a little embarrassed I can do that so easily. However, these two work in tandem. What happens when one side of the equation breaks down? The whole system begins to fall apart. We will see throughout John's Gospel from here on in that it's clear the judicial system was absolutely corrupt in Jesus' time. Politics, egos, business were all factors in the crucifixion of Jesus. In this exchange today, we're seeing Jesus, by the letter and the spirit of the law, he's calling his witnesses to defend his outrageous claims. Just as the prosecutors can call witnesses to help convict a lawbreaker, the defendant can call witnesses to defend their claims of innocence. So, with that in mind, let us start at the beginning, verse 30. I can do nothing of my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my will, but the will of him who sent me. Verse 30, this is essentially a reiteration of verses 19 and 20. Jesus is claiming that his justice that he will bring down will be perfectly just. Perfectly just. Why? Because he only does that which the Father has sent him. Of course, this reiteration is part of the problem. This is what is getting Jesus into trouble. He's making claims. He's making claims that seem blasphemous. The Jews have already accused Jesus of breaking Sabbath law and have encouraged others to do so. But now Jesus, in his defense of not breaking the Sabbath, has stumbled into an even more egregious offense, namely that of blasphemy. A truly Matlock moment here. Well, Jesus, how are you going to try and get out of this one? He begins to justify his defense by reminding the prosecutors about the law. Verse 31, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not true. A careful reading here will see that Jesus is not downplaying or denying his claims. He's making some outrageous claims. That would make no sense if he suddenly is telling them, well, just ignore me. What I'm saying is not true. It's not the point. What Jesus is doing here is reminding his audience of the law as spelled out by the book of Numbers, specifically 35 and verse 30, which states, If anyone kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the evidence of witnesses. But no person shall be put to death on the testimony of one witness. 
The concept here is pretty straightforward. Okay? Crimes that involve the death penalty, of which, of course, murder was one of them, requires, by law, witnesses. Jesus here has made some outrageous claims of which, if they are false, can bring the death penalty as a punishment. Jesus can make all the claims he wants, but the point is, unless he has credible witnesses that can push back or, can, or that can back his claims, he has no legs to stand on. My testimony is not true is a way of admitting to the Pharisees, the legal experts of the day, that unless he brings forth credible witnesses, his testimony is not worth anything and it must be thrown out. It can't be admitted into evidence because there is no evidence. His claims must be corroborated by others. Think of it this way. I'm sure some of you in here have signed a legal document, yes? And you, at, the, at the bottom, you make a signature. And then beside that, there's a line that says witness, right? The witness here is someone who can validate that it was you who signed it. What would happen if you were to sign both lines? Yes, Your Honor, I signed the document, and then I witnessed that I signed the document. Are you a credible witness to your own actions? Well, of course not. You need someone outside of yourself to verify that it was you. This is the idea. Okay, Jesus, call your first witness. Verses 32 to 35, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony that he bears about me is true. You sent to John, and he has borne witness to the truth. Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. He was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Jesus starts calling his witnesses starting I believe he starts with the weakest witness and then peaks at his last and strongest witness the first witness is John the Baptist if we look back briefly at chapter 1 verses 7 to 8 we see the apostle John uh, saying of John the Baptist that he came for a witness to bear witness to the light that all through him might believe he was not that light, but he was sent to bear witness of that light. What was John the Baptist's testimony? What did he say? What was his main message? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. That was his, that was his witness. That was his testimony. And Jesus declares that he knows that John's testimony of himself is true. How does he know that? From his other witnesses that he will be calling in short order. But Jesus turns John's testimony against his accusers. He says, you sent to John. Well, that, of course, was a reminder that they themselves bore witness to this testimony. They heard John the Baptist say this, that John was very much acting the peculiar role of the Old Testament prophet. He was calling the nation to repentance and faith, pointing the nation to Jesus as the Messiah. Then Jesus says something interesting. He says, not that the testimony that I receive is from man. Well, what did he mean by that? Jesus doesn't need man's approval to prove his works and his mission. 
He doesn't need man's approval or testimony in order to justify who he is. So what was the point of John's testimony? That you may be saved. God has chosen the weak vessels of humanity to build his kingdom, to bring humanity to repentance and faith in his Son, Jesus Christ. God doesn't need our help, but he has chosen in his infinite wisdom and in his infinite grace to include us as a means to his end. And what was their response to his testimony? Well, he says, they basked in the light of the lamp for a time. But ultimately what happened? They rejected the light. They loved the darkness rather than the light. John and his popularity was a sideshow for a while. Something to maybe be entertained by, but rejected in the end. He came in the spirit of Elijah as was prophesied by the prophet Malachi in chapter 4, yet they did not believe him. Jesus does not let the truth of his first witness to be ignored, even though he knows full well that John the Baptist was rejected. Truth must be told, ladies and gentlemen. Truth must be told regardless of who believes it or who gets offended by it. Truth is truth. John was a credible witness, and Jesus presents him as such. The rejection of that first witness is unimportant in the presentation of it. But not to worry, because Jesus has more witnesses to call. Verse 36, But the testimony that I have is greater than that of John, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing, bear witness about me, that what? That the Father has sent me. Jesus now calls his second witness, that of his miracles. We must first ask ourselves why Jesus would point to his works or signs and wonders, miracles, as a witness to his claims. How would the lawyers of the day understood this? The book of Hebrews gives us some indication fully acknowledging that this is anachronistic, of course. Obviously, in this particular scene, the Pharisees wouldn't have had the book of Hebrews yet, but it gives us an indication from the New Testament perspective the exact reason for this. Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 to 4 states, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? This salvation was first announced by the Lord, was confirmed to us by those who heard Him, and was affirmed by God through signs, wonders, various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. Signs, wonders, miracles, all had a specific purpose, including in the Old Testament. The scribes and the Pharisees would be fully aware of these qualifications that came from Deuteronomy. Okay? All prophets, listen carefully to this, all prophets had to meet three criteria in order to be validated as those speaking on behalf of God. Namely, that they had to have a calling from God Himself. It's kind of important. If someone's going to speak on behalf of God, you need to be called by God. If you read the Old Testament, especially the books of the prophets, you will see that they all had a specific calling from God, by God. 
prophets in no way, shape, or form were designated by others to be prophets. In the New Testament, all apostles were appointed by Jesus himself, excepting Matthias, who replaced Jesus. But even he, too, had to meet certain criteria, certain apostolic qualifications, including being a disciple from the time Jesus was baptized by John and seeing the resurrected Christ. He had to be there from the beginning. He had to be an early disciple who never left. He was there and he saw the resurrected Christ. Second, they were to speak truth in accordance with previous revelation. And whatever they spoke regarding future prophetic utterances, they had to come to pass. Now listen carefully. Not just some of the time. Or mostly correct. We have some new apostolic types today in churches that uh, believe that there's new apostles or new prophets or whatever they want to call them. And they're really happy when they think that the, the, the prophet that they have or the new apostle that they have, they're right about 25% of the time. What I always laugh is as a, as a teacher, um, multiple choice exams usually have options. There's four options. And we always make the joke that monkeys can can get 25% on an exam without even trying, right? So the idea that today's apostles or today's prophets can be mostly wrong and people are happy about it, have no idea of the biblical qualifications needed. The biblical qualifications are 100% accuracy, okay? Um, Whatever they predict has to come to pass. Whatever they predicted that didn't come to pass, that prophet was regarded as a false prophet and was subject to, guess what? The death penalty. God does not take false prophets, false witnesses, lightly. Lastly, the prophets and apostles were given the ability of performing miracles in order to validate their claims. Moses did wonder after wonder, sign after sign to Pharaoh in order for Pharaoh to understand that Moses wasn't speaking on his own behalf. He wasn't speaking uh, via the authority of Moses. There was no such thing as the authority of Moses. Moses spoke via the authority of God and God alone. We see in numerous places in both the Old and New Testaments that prophets and apostles had the ability to do miraculous works. This was not for their own glory. They were certainly not doing it by their own, own power, but by the power of the Holy Spirit for the express purpose and function of proving they were who they claimed. This is why Jesus brings up the miracles. What did Nicodemus say to Jesus in chapter 3? He says, we know that you're a teacher. What? Come from God. Why? How did he come to this conclusion? For no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. They recognized that. And we see Jesus again in chapter 10 of John's gospel asking the scribes and the Pharisees to believe due to the works being done. If you don't believe me, at least believe the works that I'm doing. Don't ever let someone say to you, If only God would show himself, if only God would give me a sign, then I would believe. This is false. 
This is absolutely false. Over and over again, people in the very presence of Jesus Christ, seeing the miracles he performed, denied his claims. If that witness wasn't good enough, Jesus then calls his next witness. Verses 37-38, And the Father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard, his form you have never seen, You do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent. This one's a little trickier. And more than a little ink has been spilled over this. What is clear here is that Jesus claims that the Father has borne witness about Christ. They're just trying to figure out how. As some of you are now aware of, anytime there is some kind of question mark with regards to what New Testament writers may mean in a text, my inclination is to look backwards to the Old Testament to see if there are any clues that might help us to understand. Jesus himself, out of all the options that I've read, this is the one that I find most compelling. Jesus, I think, is is elaborating on his claim when he says, Well, first he says, his voice you have never heard. Some try to claim that that the uh, Father was Jesus' witness due to the Father's voice being made loud and clear at Jesus' baptism. R.C. Sproul, when he preached on this, he he used that uh, instance to back up the claim that that, uh, the Father was a witness. The problem is, if that were the case, Jesus' claim here would make little sense. So let's take Jesus at his word. Was there anyone in the Old Testament that did hear God's voice? More than a couple, I would say, but the easy one to pick out, of course, and the one that Jesus references in a minute would be Moses. Moses and God spoke what? Face to face. The scriptures tell us here, Jesus, the God man, is speaking face to face with the Pharisees, and yet they do not believe. The second statement is, his form you have never seen. Moses saw God's back parts. Jacob in Genesis 32, what did he do? He wrestled with God in bodily form. Yet here's Jesus, God in bodily form, right in front of them, and they do not believe. Lastly, Jesus tells them, you do not have his word abiding in you. This accusation would have been quite the slap in the face and the one that is most easily proven false, right? I mean, the Pharisees were famous for their Awana competitions, They had more Awana trophies than they knew what to do with. These people knew their Bibles inside and out. So what is Jesus talking about here? I think D.A. Carson has it right when he says, Unlike Joshua or David, who hid God's word in their hearts, meditating on it, learning not to sin against God, and understanding that divine blessing in their lives depended upon the word, these Pharisees and scribes, with the word standing, the word, the, B, the W, capital W, with the word standing right in front of them, missed it. That's only possible if they did not have the word abiding in them. 
Jesus elaborates this uh, abiding concept in much greater detail in chapter 15. But for now, we can understand that the Pharisees did not truly know the Father. In order to know the Father, you must know and believe the Son. They refused to do that. So Jesus then moves on to his final witness, the Scriptures. Verses 39-40, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and it is they that bear witness about me, yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. Now I know what some of you are thinking, because you're a bunch of thinkers in here. I know what some of you are thinking. Now wait a minute, Pastor. You claim that the witnesses are going from weakest to greatest. How can you claim that the Scriptures are greater than that of the Father? Are you crazy? I know that's what some of you are thinking. I'll grant it, maybe you got a point. But hear me out for a second. The witness of the Father is directly related to what? His self-revelation. Where is this self-revelation found? Did Jesus point to creation? No. He indirectly pointed to Old Testament prophets. God reveals the fullness of Himself as best we can understand Him via His Word. He has left us and left the Pharisees at the time books. Books which revealed clearly and plainly about who He is and what He is doing. Jesus accuses the Pharisees of straining the gnat and swallowing the camel. They are missing the most vital part of the story. They've somehow jumped to the final chapter without understanding the process of how they got there in the first place. You think that in the scriptures you have eternal life. Now is that an incorrect statement? No. But the scriptures in and of themselves have no saving power. Life is not to be found by how well you memorize the Torah or how well you follow the dietary laws. Life is found in Christ and Christ alone. And this has always been the case, by the way. Life was never found in the law. Paul says the exact opposite. The Old Testament scriptures indeed pointed to eternal life, but they missed the road to that life, and that road is Jesus. The Old Testament points to Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. Now let me ask you, when Paul spoke to the Bereans about the good news of the gospel, what did the Bereans do? They searched the scriptures. What scriptures? Did they search the gospel of John? No wasn't written yet. How about Galatians? Galatians was the earliest uh, letter to be uh, written, New Testament scholars believe. No, it too wasn't written yet. So what scriptures did the Bereans search? The Old Testament. And what did they find? They found that Paul was telling the truth and came to saving faith in Jesus Christ, their Messiah. 
Yet here we have the experts in the Scriptures refusing to come to Jesus in order to have the very thing they are seeking hardest for, eternal life. What was the difference? The Bereans were willing. The Pharisees and the scribes were not. How sad when our egos get in the way of advancing our very own cause. Jesus finishes his testimony with his closing arguments. I do not receive glory from people, but I know that you do not have the love of God within you. Verses 41-42. Jesus cares little about receiving glory from people. Remember? He knows what's in a man and does not entrust himself to them. In this sense, he doesn't need or want accolades from the scribes and Pharisees. He is not there to build a great, big, popular movement. At least not yet. That comes later. There is one thing and one thing only that Jesus wanted. And that was glory from the Father. Via His pleasing the Father through His obedience. Glory from God is far more worthy than that of fickle man. Friend, one minute... Mortal enemy the next. Jesus' accusation of the fact that they do not have the love of God within them is a strong indication that they are part of the darkness. That they love the darkness rather than the light. After all, if they loved the light, they would love Him. That's the process. If you loved the light, you would love me. But they clearly do not. Verse 43, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. Do you recall what the expected Messiah was supposed to be? The Jews were, and in many ways still are, awaiting the great political figure that would free them from bondage at the time, especially that of Rome, who would then lead them into a time of great prosperity and peace. Jesus was not the Messiah they were looking for. He was claiming things that were not what we might call kosher to them. He wasn't claiming to be a great leader, come to save them from the Romans. He was coming in the name of the Father to what? To save them from their sins. They abhorred that idea. Instead, they chased after other Messiahs, ones that fit their paradigm a little better. Josephus and other historical writers of the time corroborate this idea with the number of risings up Rome had to squash because of these false messiahs coming in their own names. They were popping up all over the place and the scribes and Pharisees were chasing after them. Jesus didn't fit that paradigm, so he was rejected by the so-called experts. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from God? Verse 44. Jesus here points out the main problem, that of what we might call vainglory. Do you remember what Ecclesiastes says about vanity? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That which is vain is meaningless and worthless. The glory they seek from one another is vain. The glory that we seek from one another is vain. It's worthless. It's meaningless. And here we have 
the very glory of God staring you in the face, Mr. Pharisee, Mr. Scribe, and what? They reject it. What do we call that? I would call it the height of foolishness. Verses 45 to 47. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, Moses, on whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Like any exceptional trial lawyer, Jesus ends with a flurry that hurts. He claims, sorry, he claimed that he has been given the authority to judge from the Father. Ergo, I'm sure that the scribes and Pharisees were there thinking this arrogant and blasphemous person named Jesus was claiming that he would indeed judge them in the end. <coughs> Pardon me. However, what does Jesus do? I find this a little humorous. Put simply, he claims essentially that I have the power to judge you, but I won't. Instead, I'm going to look over at Moses. I'm going to call him over, whom you claim to love and embrace and follow as your greatest prophet, and I'm going to ask him to have the honor of judging you for himself on my behalf. How shocked will they be when their prized prophet the one whom they claim to follow, stands before them on the day of judgment and declares to Jesus and the Father, I accuse them of idolatry and sin of the most heinous kind, namely a rejection of the Father via a rejection of the Son. For they love their darkness more than the light and rejected their Messiah, the one I wrote about. Remember the story of Lazarus? Lazarus by the gate, the poor one. The rich man says, Please send Lazarus back to warn my brothers after they had both died. And what was the response? They have Moses. They have Moses. And if they won't listen to Moses, neither will they listen to Lazarus, even if he's raised from the dead. This was an important argument to hammer home. If you won't believe Moses, you won't believe me. Don't call yourself a believer. Don't call yourself a lover of God, all the while rejecting the very one whom he sent. Reject Jesus, and you reject the Father. Simple. So anyone who tries to tell you, I love God, I just don't love God the same way you do. Jesus says otherwise. You have no love for the Father unless you love me. If you reject me, you reject the Father. So here's my conclusion. I had a little trouble with the conclusion. I was trying to think, how do I wrap this up? So I'm going to ask for your patience. Here we go. I'm also going to ask you to pay close attention. I want you to follow along with me just for a minute. I'm going to set the scene for you. Ready? We're going to do a little play acting. I'm going to be playing all parts. So you've got to pay attention. We're setting the scene. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27. Just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes the judgment. You live, you die, then the judgment. 
Here's the scene. Picture a courtroom. You got the courtroom in your mind? Here's the courtroom. Courtroom person. Docket number 5987243. God versus the accused. Charges are idolatry, blasphemy, breaking the Sabbath, not honoring the father and the mother, murder, adultery, theft, telling lies, and coveting. <coughs> Pardon me. Judge. That's quite a list. How do you plead? The accused. Not guilty, Your Honor. By the way, um, everyone pleads not guilty. Judge. No need for a bail hearing. We're ready for trial now. Prosecutor, call your first witness. Prosecutor. In the next room, we have piles of evidence. Things said, things thought, things done. We have witnesses, lots and lots of witnesses that can corroborate all charges. We'll be here for years if we were to pre uh, present them all. Judge. Well, we definitely don't want that. Uh, can we speed this thing up at all? Prosecutor. Yes, Judge, I'd like to call just two witnesses in this case. The accused is guilty of idolatry, specifically an outright rejection of this heavenly courtroom, and in fact, our very existence. I'd like to call my first witness, creation. This is where things get a little weird. Creation personified now. Somebody who looks like creation takes the stand. You got the picture? Courtroom person to creation personified. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole not? Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Creation personified? I do. Prosecutor, creation, please give us the evidence that you have against the accused. Creation, look around. For what can be known about God is plain to the accused because God has shown it to them. For His invisible attributes, namely His eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So the accused is without excuse. Prosecutor, thank you. That is all. I'd like to call my second witness, the empty tomb. Courtroom person to empty tomb. Do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you, God. Empty tomb. I do. Prosecutor, please tell us what happened on the Passover weekend on or around the year 33 A.D. Empty tomb. Jesus was laid in my tomb on Friday night. Early Sunday morning, he got up, took off his wraps, and walked out the door. I haven't seen him since. Prosecutor. Was he dead? Tomb. Dead as a doornail. Prosecutor. And you're sure no one stole him. He got up all by himself and walked out on his own two feet. Tomb. That is correct, sir. If it would please you, there are hundreds of people that can corroborate my testimony, some of whom were killed, martyred, because they would not recant their testimony of seeing Jesus alive. Prosecutor, thank you. That is all. Your Honor, we rest our case. Judge, does the defendant have any rebuttal? Here's where there's an awkward silence, because what would any accuser say to the charges? 
Of course you don't, but I feel like I have to ask. Accused, I find you guilty of all charges and sentence you to life in the lake of fire. Bailiff, take him away. End scene. This time a Christian dies. I want you to picture this. The courtroom's the same. The charges are all the same. Except this time, when the judge calls for a plea from the defense, I want you to see this. I want you to see this clearly. When the judge calls for a plea from the defense, he steps down from his seat. He stands by your side. Maybe even puts a loving arm around you and says on your behalf, not guilty. For I have paid the price. I have taken his guilt upon me and I have transferred my righteousness to him. And in dramatic fashion, as the camera pans in, Jesus turns toward the accused and says, Well done, my good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so very much for this day. We thank you for the word. We thank you that uh, our judge, as a Christian, our judge is also our defense attorney. That because of the faith that you have given us, the gift of faith and repentance, we have come to the feet of Jesus Christ. And uh, we now... Wear the blood of Christ that sheds our sin and that we stand before God righteous, not because we are righteous, but because of the righteousness of him who died on our behalf. We thank you so very, very much, Lord. We ask that you would place this thought into our heads, that we would go this week and, uh, and think on these things. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.